0: You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by NORI, the world's first carbon removal marketplace.
1: Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospe.
0: Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospe and Paul Gamble. We are in the Nori HQ in Seattle. Um, we have a guest today that we we met at. Uh, we have a clean tech brain trust that Christoph, you've been quite involved with and in getting going here. And uh, we met our guest and thought this guy would be great for the podcast. I
1: helped start the clean tech brain trust with a friend of mine, Aoi Senju, who inconveniently left Seattle, even though we'd come around the same time, and it was kind of like, hey, we're clean tech entrepreneurs, and we don't like going to silly networking events where you can't really get to know anyone. But it would be cool if we could all bring people who are really smart and like to geek out on different sides of the energy equation, the carbon equation. How can we learn from each other? How can we help each other? How can we maybe even like each other and drink beers? Through that, was really fortunate to meet Connor, who... I guess, Aoi knew through Element 8, which is a group of people with money who like to put it into clean technology projects. Um, Connor is a research fellow, and he is also working at Seattle City Light. I'll say the disclaimer for him. What he says represents his own opinions and not those of Seattle City Light. And maybe he'll say it again, but this way we can really get your true thoughts out there, Connor. Um, And yeah, you know, Connor came in. It was electric. We plugged in the podcast equipment and made a circuit break. Connor was like, "Oh yeah, I know all about that. I'm an electrician, or was an electrician. Maybe we'll learn about what that means too." But Connor, welcome. It's great to have you in here. We had a lot of fun at the last Clean Tech Brain Trust. And Ross turned to me and was like, "Oh, can we just farm people for?" the podcast for this? Oh, yeah,
0: I called it our Farm League for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it is now. Yeah, outed you there.
1: Uh, but anyway, Connor, we like to start with people's story and really understand their motivations. What got them into working on climate change? And really, where, where did it all begin? How did it start for you?
2: Yeah, so I guess it's a little bit longer of a story than I would imagine sometimes, and then it gets longer as you get older, right? So initially, I got into renewables probably back about over a decade ago, right around 2006. And initially, spent a lot of time as a younger gentleman um, outdoors doing a lot of camping, canoeing, basically just being outside as much as possible. And that really kind of instilled a, a love for nature as I, I think a lot of people who are in this industry have. So, initially got involved while working at, uh, on my undergrad at the Evergreen State College uh, in astrophysics, um, working with a professor that did a lot of, with NASA and mainly trying to get an idea of solar physics in general. So, and uh, during that time frame, I did work a little bit with NASA satellites, uh, do a lot of spatial calculations, working on coronal uh, kernel mass ejections, all the fun solar flare stuff. Initially went out to Colorado after that and began working in commercial, residential, and utility scale solar installations out there as an installer for a while. So I did that for a bit of time.
0: And unfortunately- That sounds we- like that might have been your electrician time.
2: And that, was, that was part of my electrician time right there. Definitely, yeah. So, and uh, unfortunately that period of time, I think that was about 2010, and the solar industry is much more of that solar coaster term that a lot of people don't like as much. But uh, unfortunately, the whole boom and bust uh, subsidy went out overnight uh, and the industry kind of collapsed in that States. And I was kind of forced to come back to Washington state where I helped with iTech Energy, which is one of Washington state's only, actually, I think it is the only Washington state solar panel manufacturer at the moment. So helped them get off the ground. Uh, worked there for a couple of years, went and got my master's in renewable energy policy, worked as a solar, uh, system designer and salesperson here in Seattle for a while. And what else did I I worked for the DOE on a different grant? Um, The
1: Department of Energy.
2: Exactly. The Federal Department of Energy on a SunShot grant with the Solar Foundation. They're the ones who do the solar job census every year. I was doing rural uh, renewable energy policy advising for small communities out in northern Minnesota. Also, I have my own consulting firm. I also work at UW as an instructor doing renewable energy and blockchain kind of stuff. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you dropped that one on us and we were like, oh, that's a nice surprise. We'll have to get into that too. Yeah. I was thinking we haven't had anyone do solar on the podcast yet. You think maybe it'd be a good thing to just give us a general overview of, of what the lay of the land is these days? Sure.
2: So I think any anytime you really talk about solar right now, I think kind of the first thing to talk about is just how drastically the industry has been changing over the last five, ten years. Uh it's been Slowly growing, but just the price drop within recent years has been astronomical compared to a lot of technologies out there. As it becomes more commonplace and more accepted, it becomes a lot more easy to kind of integrate. And kind of that's a lot of the stuff that I do with uh, the city Um, on my current contract with the DOE again. And so I think... Has been growing. It's really picked up purely economical argument in a lot of places. So at this point, it's beating a lot of other generation out, which is fantastic. The amount of operation issues that you have with malfunctioning equipment has really dropped off dramatically as well. But yeah, I think generally just over the next couple of years is going to be a major, um, I mean, just looking at the EIA, which is the Energy Information Agency with the federal governments, and if you look at the amount of installed capacity per year per unit type, it's pretty much always solar and wind that are beating out everything else out. So,
0: Yeah, I remember my favorite article about this that I've seen, and I suspect you all have as well, is that one from, I think it's Georgetown, Texas which was uh, statistically one of the most conservative uh, places. So you wouldn't expect a passion for renewable energy, but it was so cheap there that it ended up displacing natural gas and uh, just petroleum generally.
2: Yeah. I mean, anytime that you see solar being natural gas, is kind of an amazing article in itself too, so...
0: One of my favorite
1: graphs that the IEA puts out are projections on solar that always underpredict just how rapidly solar will proliferate. Like They're always wrong. Each year they're wrong. And then they need to improve it. And I think one of the reasons for that is because there's this mindset that is very linear. It can only be linear progression. But actually with solar technologies, we've seen exponential scale. So what is it about solar that makes it able to scale exponentially?
2: Um, I think right now it's... God, it's hard to say. I think part of the issue, too, I mean, the biggest driver is obviously the economic aspect. And I think for a long time there's been a lot of kind of base load generation that is just... Kind of ingrained, and uh, I mean, you, people talk about stranded assets where these things have been built, and they're built for such a high cost, and they have such a high variable megawatt hour dollar per megawatt hour on the market that if you have solar that you can put in for a hell of a, I mean, excuse me, a heck of a lot cheaper, then it's much easier for them to just build these resources and plop that them in there and go with PERPA. That doesn't pass our censorship muster. Oh, don't worry, <laughs> <All> right, <good.
0: laughs> you're good done.
1: In. Podcast <laughs> cut off. <laughs> I mean. You, you, do say whatever you like. Do not feel restrained. If you must curse, if it's to make for dramatic effect, we'll allow it.
3: Well. <laughs> <laughs> I, would prefer, work I so. would prefer not to put the explicit tag, but saying hell is not going to do that. Yeah, right, H-E e double hockey
1: sticks. I remember that from grade school. Um, <laughs> yeah, hold on, podcast listeners. We have an important issue to
0: <laughs> resolve before we can continue.
1: <laughs> okay, so you're talking about costs. What are the main drivers of costs? So we've got, obviously, the manufacturing, the installation, other things like that. How, do, how does that all work? I mean, it's cool that we've got manufacturing here in Washington State, but I was under the impression that a lot of the solar manufacturing happens overseas where you're just able to take advantage of cheaper labor or potentially large industries such as steel capacity. Or What do what the dynamics look like there? Where do the costs come from?
2: Yeah, so I, mainly when you talk about it with the federal government, they kind of break it down to two different aspects, and that's uh, the solar sunshots with the Department of Energy. Their main focus was on the soft costs, so that's basically anything that's not... Balance the systems, BOS, which is basically like anything that you can hold in your hand. That's hardware, um, that's rails, that's uh, clips, that's kind of anything that would kind of fall into that category. And soft costs are like the permitting. Customer acquisition, which surprisingly for solar is one of the largest costs and is one of the hardest ones to kind of break down for some odd reason. Customer acquisition. Customer acquisition. Uh, for some odd reason, that's a very large uh, component compared to other industries. Interconnection costs, which typically can be anywhere between like $500 and $1,000 per system, depending on where you're at. And so the soft costs, typically, I think last time I looked at NREL was right around 40-ish percent, 25% for commercial, but like 40 for residential sometimes. And yeah, I think as you get the economies to scale with international kind of manufacturing, that's kind of mainly of the case with the, you have like Gingli, you have SunPower, which actually is from the uh, United States. I think they're Arizona Nevada, and they're fantastic. A lot of the major solar, like first solar, they're all from outside the country, and this really is that economies of scale. So once you can start buying, I guess, the ingredients like the the aluminum, the glass, the back sheet, all on these massive scales, then you really get that uh, cost reduction.
3: Is it just photovoltaic now? Or mm-hmm. uh, like, maybe this is just showing off my naivete on this. <laughs> um, when, when Ross and I were in college at in Arizona, I was involved in some research, but everything then was about concentrated solar and PV was still way more expensive. So how does that fit in now are you, are you just talking about pv right now
0: Wait, we yeah. should we should probably explain it was concentrated where it all bounces in like heats up water and it turns into steam and it it runs a turbine, something like that.
2: Typically, I mean, at this point, it's mainly molten salt, uh, sodium chloride, where they just have it in tubes. So that's what they use for the thermal. So, yeah, they have these huge parabolic troughs, which I'm making a gesture with my hands, which y'all can't see. But it looks like <laughs> a bowl. It looks like a bowl, exactly. And so they have this long trough running along on these rails that actually attract the sun. And inside, at the exact point where all the trough kind of uh, concentrates is where this pipe is. The focal point? The focal point. Yeah, it's a focal point, but it's like some other, I think, specific term. But yeah, something like that. Anyway, so that heats up the salt. But I've been primarily talking about PV, so photovoltaic exactly. And the reason for the drastic increase in PV has been that reduction cost over the last decade or so. And I think as it's there's other forms of PV. So there's basically uh, monocrystalline, which is based on the ones that don't have any fractal patterns in it. And there's also thin film, which is also kind of commercially viable at this point, too. For solar, one of the largest manufacturers in the world, they have, I mean, their main technology is thin film, but it's a little bit less efficient. Um, There's a little bit more kind of rarity materials that kind of go into. It's a little bit harder to scale up sometimes. And I think as we move forward, hopefully there's some kind of more innovations in regard to the aspect of non-rare-Earth minerals. So essentially, if you think of copper, silver, all these different aspects that go into a panel, they're not really common and they're kind of expensive and they really fluctuate a lot with depending on the market. So right now, UW actually is, um, University of Washington is one of the best researchers when it comes to material science, when it comes to photovoltaics as well. And they're looking at a lot of like iron oxide kind of style panels, which is really cool.
0: For photovoltaic, that's just directly taking the light and turning that into electricity?
2: Yep. Taking the photons and there's some, it's actually quantum mechanics that happen inside of that, but yeah, and then just turn that to electrons. So <laughs> I can get more into that if you want to, but it gets really deep quick. So.
0: What a magical grin you had on your face! Uh, we talked about this a little bit when we first met. And we'd like to dig into the lifecycle analysis of solar panels because it, it sounds good and it's clean and it's it's becoming cheaper and cheaper and and just how clean uh, are solar panels?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to kind of break that down too, and I think one way to look at it is the uh, embedded carbon is one easy way. So I think. I haven't looked in this in a while, but one of the ones I looked at a year or two ago was about. I think if you look at the the amount of carbon that is ingrained in the panels, about two years worth of power. So basically, every single time it's producing clean power, it's got to produce it for about two years, to be able to offset the amount of carbon that went into it. And so, lifespan wise, these things have warranties of up to twenty five years. Uh, manufacturer warranties typically. So workmanship is actually the installer; they'll do about ten, but twenty five years. So if you Break it uh, before the 25 years without any kind of fault of your own. Then the manufacturer is supposed to replace it at that point. And I mean, if you think about it too, a lot of these things are actually rated to be last a lot longer than that. But you have this uh, annual cell degradation rate of about 0.5 percent. So every five years, it's going to produce about 0.5 percent less than it did the year before. So that kind of varies on the technology too a little bit.
0: How do you do in apples to apples comparison with uh, more conventional power plants?
2: That's, that's really the harder part, I think. There's a lot of methodologies out there that are kind of widely accepted at this point. And for example, right now I'm doing a lot of work with uh Street Lights on uh, net metering. So basically evaluation of net electric, net electric metering, which is I think kind of how most solar system owners get compensated. And so... Because we're not a thermal plant, which is anything gas, coal, or even nuclear, it's really hard to make those comparisons sometimes. But there's a lot of different figures that you can kind of use on a 15-year, 25-year time frame that makes those apples-to-apples comparisons.
1: And so net metering is a policy incentive that allows homeowners to actually get paid for generating power. And oftentimes that just pays for the installation of the solar itself. So you, you're not actually going to see an increase at all for installing this. And if oftentimes it, it plays out in your favor. Mm-hmm. But it depends where you live, right?
3: Very much so, yeah. Like, I I remember, I don't know the exact details of this, but after whatever that last big hurricane that tore through Florida was, I was reading stories online about how the local utility, at this is somewhere in northern Florida, wasn't allowing them to operate their solar panels and run their
2: house off of it because it was affecting the grid in some way. Interesting. I, I, I could totally believe that, too, and I think... I mean, one of the the laws that's actually really kind of heavily followed by um, manufacturers called something UL seventeen forty one. So it essentially says that anytime that you're producing, uh, if the grid is down, you can't actually produce back onto the grid for safety concerns, because if you do that, then you're going to be able to shock the uh, the line workers, mm-hmm. which you don't want.
1: So it's really fun to have people on the podcast who work at utilities because you provide an insight into something that a lot of people take for granted and don't really think about it's like you turn the light on it just happens you expect you it's it's it, I mean it's almost like a
0: human right <laughs> yeah if it doesn't work you're in trouble but yeah if, but if it does then you're invisible
1: yeah right? but you're you're also an innovation guy who's like utilities come on guys you're kind of like dinosaurs and don't move very quickly and so what are some of your frustrations working at a utility?
2: So, I think it's it's interesting kind of before getting this fellowship. So, and, and again, just qualify. So, I actually uh, clarify. So, I work with the Department of Energy as a fellow for Cetosulite. And so, one of the biggest things is the fact that I think a lot of these industries with utilities have a much older uh, kind of employee group. So, I think with Cetosulite specifically, it's right around like 57, 58, 60 sometimes. So, they have a huge population of workers that are about to retire, and I think a lot of the times the apathy that I find is very frustrating. So they've been doing these same things for about 20, 30 years. The industry hasn't really evolved that quickly compared to what it is doing now. And so their perspective, I find a lot of times, is why change what I'm doing when I'm going to be gone in two years? I don't want to learn this new way. It seems a lot more complicated. I'm kind of writing things out and all I really want is my pension and yeah.
1: Kind of sounds like uh, the installation of coal or gas-fired power plants that you just build it and you expect to recoup your costs over a period of 40 years and why would you even consider designing that plant differently? Yeah, cool. So we're in Seattle and the state of Washington and that means that we get a lot of our energy from hydroelectric, which is billed as a renewable, source of energy. And hydro is one of those things that probably does the lion's share of work right now with producing renewable or carbon free energy along with nuclear. But hydro isn't always all that good, because sometimes it stops the flow of fish going back to where they want to go. And sometimes it accumulates more carbon behind the hydro dams. And so the kind of Carbon accounting geek in me gets really... Wait, what does that mean, accumulates carbon
3: behind the dams?
1: Yeah, well, I'm going to turn it around and just ask you, Connor, because that makes the carbon accounting geek in me really angry, because I'm like, these hydro dams need to be buying CRCs if they truly want to call themselves carbon neutral.
2: Yeah. And I guess, so I'll answer my short uh, perspective of this too, and then kind of bound it back to you. So the way that I see the embedded carbon behind the dams mainly is when you have a newer dam that's installed... Uh, you're essentially taking up a lot of land that was previously used for a lot of different stuff, and so we'll use the example of Washington State, where we have a lot of, I mean, woods everywhere, these beautiful big Douglas firs, and so anytime you do this dam, that whole valley that gets flooded has a lot of CO2 that was embedded in the trees, and so once you have the water come along in there, then they start to decompose and release carbon into the atmosphere again. And so that's kind of what you're talking about, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So so it's like it's like embodied carbon in, exactly in buildings, similar sort of concept. Except this is actually released within the first, like, one to two years, I think, typically. That de- decomposition starts releasing that CO2. So it might last a lot longer than that, but that's, from my understanding, which is very slim. That's what happens. But, I mean, there's also the embedded carbon within the the concrete. So, I mean, a lot of these dams are concrete dams, and there's a lot of CO2 within every single cubic foot of concrete. Which, I mean, a lot of these dams run for about 100 years, but despite that, too, it's, I mean, I don't personally know kind of that levelized carbon content, but it's it's not... A small amount at all
0: I'm always very curious about the actual environmental impact of, of dams I I, you know, I always liked Edward Abbey a lot I mm-hmm. thought he was an interesting uh writer and I wonder like, what we're losing and or like I think it was it was John Muir who was angry about Hetch Hetchy in Yosemite very much so I spent I spent like a week or two backpacking in Hetch Hetchy and it was beautiful but I, I wish I could see most of it that's underwater now yeah. I'm wondering like like how you quantify what you're actually losing when you're damming up things
2: well, and it's, it's interesting, too. So, I mean, a lot of the time when I was working in the solar industry, it was kind of fluctuant too. So, my time off from doing solar work when the industry didn't work was as a whitewater raft guide. So, I spent a lot of my life on rivers. I love rivers. And it's very depressing sometimes kind of hear stories of these beautiful canyons that are just gone now. They're still there, but they're underneath a huge reservoir. I mean, Glen Canyon, for example, I think that's back in the 1930s, 40s, too, that the gentleman who was working with that, he saved the Grand Canyon by basically sacrificing Glen Canyon. And once that dam was up, he said it was one of the worst mistakes of his life, allowing that to happen. And it's just yet sad. It's in a lot of these places, like if you look at the Columbia, too, and you mentioned fish earlier as well. I mean, Snake River, all these Columbia River dams basically prevent just a mass amount of salmon from breeding. And they uh, historically, salmon born in one river will go down to the ocean, live there for a while, come back up, and go to the exact same tributary that they're from. But if they can't get there, then you just basically lost. I don't even know what percentage of your salmon population from that. So
1: it's it's really interesting to think about. I mean, our listeners will know that we like to address issues systemically and think about all the various forces that are going in one way or another. One fun fact or or not, I don't know, is that the World Bank likes to fund dams, but they are looking at economies of scale. So they're funding the huge dams, and the huge dams aren't the best, but the sort of more modular approaches scale a little bit better, or maybe are at least causing less harm on the environment. Or it's just easier to get those through the bureaucratic process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so that I kind of want to transition this conversation a bit. I mean, you have this great little perch working with the Department of Energy and at a utility and sort of understanding how innovation might flow from idea into implementation Mm -hmm. and have been around long enough where you probably see a lot of good ideas that maybe never made it, some good ideas that did. And so, how do you kind of think about energy innovation or good ideas that can just make a great impact on, maybe it's obvious since you're on the Reversing Climate Change podcast, but great ideas that make an impact on reducing or reversing carbon?
2: So, I mean, the the kind of the topic of watching some of them die. So, I think I'll kind of caveat this with the fact that I think a lot of the, the rationale for this is that the energy industry as a whole is just a very difficult industry to get into. It's very entrenched, very kind of... I mean, it's utilities. And typically what happens is you uh, kind of like valley of death that these uh, innovations will come into. And so they'll have a great idea. They'll try to market it. And when you're dealing with energy, you basically have to work with the utilities or not. If you don't, then you kind of, you die in that death valley. And that's kind of the issue too. And it's The frustrating part is that even if you have a brilliant idea, it takes about eight to ten years for utilities to be able to adopt these technologies on a large scale. So you have to kind of weather a storm for about eight to ten years. And so I guess one example of a particular situation of this would be not anything drastically new, but kind of a newer concept and an old idea of high voltage DC transmission. So I mean, currently we have HVAC, high voltage AC, kind of going across the nation, which has been the traditional kind of grid backbone for the US, which uh, just in general, our grid is very antiquated and old and inefficient. And we just don't update it. And that's for a lot of kind of more regulatory and policy
3: reasons. Can I jump in and ask, if money, time, and politics weren't an issue,
2: what would we do to update our grid? If money and time, we would have a bunch of microgrids with um, a lot of kind of localized energy usage. And then a couple of like large peaker or large kind of baseload plants distributed across this. So, So A microgrid is like neighborhood level. Neighborhood, city, anytime that you're kind of moving power across states, that just gets ridiculous for the most part, because I think line loss on average about 7 to 9% or even 10% just with transmission. Uh And so if you look at distribution on top of that too, it just kind of starts adding up quick. Um, But yeah, I think this idea of the HVDC is kind of taking this concept of what you just mentioned too, like the ideal situation, and then saying like, all right, what do we currently have to work with? And we have this old antiquated grid with a lot of kind of large producers, large generators in one spot. And so... HVDC is much more efficient at moving that power and the line losses are a lot less. And so Clean Line is a group I think out of Illinois that's been going at it for about 10 years trying to get HVDC lines privately funded all across country and they it for they have a lot of them in place regulatory wise and none of them have been built yet. And the biggest one I think is um, God, it's basically, it's bringing generation from Ontario down into New York. And I think it's Mountain Pass or something like that. And it's one of the most contentious transmission lines in the country right now. A lot of people are finding is basically it's supposed to go over this beautiful mountain and the whole NIMBY aspect. They don't want to see a whole large transmission line going across their backyard, which this is tough. It's a lot of eminent domain as well, which I really don't support personally that much. But... It's the fact like, all right, we have a international issue of climate change. If we don't do something now, then we're kind of screwed. So how do you kind of work with what you have? So yeah, stuff. And Clean Line, I wish the best of them, but yeah, they're still struggling hard.
1: Yeah, NIMBY, that stands for not in my backyard. <laughs> and it's a really contentious <laughs> issue for sure because I mean, another thing that our listeners can't see is the awesome shirt that Connor is wearing, which has a bunch of wind turbines on it. Not oh, windmills. That is, yeah. But wind is not evenly distributed around the country. And we have enough wind capacity to power the entire United States. But then it's the transmission question of how do we get it there and building transmission lines. Man, I don't envy the guy who needs to go around and try to convince people they want a transmission line going through their backyard.
3: When I was in college and working at the decision theater at ASU with Jason, actually, we worked on this project called AZ Smart. That was, uh, I don't remember what, It was some acronym, but it was all about solar, knowing that Arizona is the best place in the world for solar insulation and you could easily build enough solar capacity in Arizona to power North America. But... The problem was transmission, but what we seem to find, not only was it just like, how do you build that stuff, but the politics of the different states, uh, like in Arizona, you have a corporation commission of five elected people who then have to like make the decisions on how all of this infrastructure works and the agreements that they broker with the other states. And like, it's no wonder, I mean, it's... It's not just an engineering problem. And if it were just engineering, it probably wouldn't be that hard.
2: No, and you're exactly right. It's it's definitely not the engineering. I think it's the policy and the politics and the regulatory by far. And I think the interesting for me on this whole aspect is the fact that the federal government's trying so hard to kind of fix this. And uh, FERC specifically, I think Order 1000 actually looks directly at trying to really take give the power to states to promote this. And if they don't, then say like, all right, we gave you the option. We're going to take it away from you. We're going to do it federally right now and mandate these things. And it's been a perpetual battle in lawsuits all across the country because that's basically what's been happening is people will call this order and say like, all right, we gave you the time frame you needed, and you have one to two years to do this, and you didn't respond, so we're just going to go straight to the federal government and get their permission and then build it anyway. And then once that happens in all these states, then try to step in. Uh, the public service commissions or public utility committees will step in and say, like, actually, this is not your authority. You're overstepping your boundaries. And then it always gets tied up, which eventually, most likely, the um, manufacturers, the high-voltage DC lines will win, but you can't really last for 10 years is the issue as a company without any kind of revenue. So...
0: Given your comments about politics, I was wondering if I could gauge you on just how often utilities ought to be regulated as utilities rather than something that's more familiar to us who interact with the competitive markets. Do all of them need to be quasi-monopolies or explicitly so?
2: That's kind of a deep question right there. I think (laughs) (laughs) – I I do think they need to be regulated. I think quasi-monopolies – I mean natural monopolies essentially, yes. I think – It's that moral hazard that it's easier to do certain things sometimes, and it's not necessarily the benefit for all to do that. And it also makes sense that you don't really want to have multiple different power lines going to your house. So just having the one power line and kind of managing it that way. But at the same time, it really causes a lack of innovation sometimes, hence my position with the feds right now. So all that aside, it's really heartening to see all these public utility commissions, um, which is essentially the entity with the state that kind of regulates utilities, typically, and essentially always the IOUs, which are investor-owned utilities, which are the private ones. They're really trying to start to be more innovative in how they kind of require these utilities to present information. So integrated resource plan being one of them, which I work on a little bit at uh, Seattle Street Light, which says, for the next 20 years, here's our goals. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what the landscape looks like. And here's how we're going to respond to it. And so, these PUCs, uh, public utility commissions, are really starting to say, like, all right, cool, you've given us this information in the past, we want you to start looking at this instead, or in this in addition to what you've looked at in the past. So... For example, a distributed energy resource plan on top of your IRP is one of these where you say that, all right, how does renewables present opportunities for non-wires alternatives? So essentially you say that traditionally you would buy, uh, build another transformer in this area or upgrade the transformer. And they're saying, well, all right, that's cool. But if you did a bunch of DG, distributed generation in that same area, how much can solar potentially offset that need for new transmission or new distribution infrastructure? So it's it's getting there, but yeah, I think... (laughs) It's a deep hole to dig into that question that you asked. Yeah, I think short answer is still that they do need to have that regulation.
0: Okay, fair enough. And maybe we'll see that change if microgrids take off or solar seems quite, well, not in the production because economies of scale are in play and they're built in China for the most part and shipped. But uh, that seems like quite decentralized technology where maybe that can be provided in a more non-market or market form of interaction rather than something like the utility regulation. Or maybe maybe I'm totally wrong and this is something that's just a natural monopoly and always will be.
1: Well, I want to steer your comments with something that maybe you brought up early on that that connor said these magic words starts with a b ends with a lock chain what does that have to do with the whole energy innovation space and how do you see that coming together
2: I think it's a great question. I think blockchain—it's as a kind of a fledgling, well, fledgling. Yeah, it's is kind of an establishing itself within the the industry. I think there's a lot of potential there, and specifically for certain things that a lot of people had issues with it before that there was no solution for. An example: secure trading of information and kind of credits. And so I see going to your earlier question about natural monopolies. I mean, if you look at California right now, which has a much more deregulated market than we do, which I would try to explain that, but it's kind of, it's essentially a lot more freedom in your energy market within states. So they have a lot more opportunity for the CCS, which are community choice aggregators, excuse me, CCAs. Essentially, there are these group of people that say, if you want to deflect from your utility, you can, you can start paying us. And we have a lot more of what you want, whatever that want is. So that can be, we want more... I don't know, uh, and typically it's renewables within California. So we want a much greener portfolio, and they'll say, like, all right, pretty much all of our energy is green. It's great. So people are like, all right, cool, I'll sign up with you all instead, leave my utility. So we don't have that option within Washington State, but down in California, it's this aggregation aspect is becoming huge, especially, I mentioned the Fed's, FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the one who had that order with transmission. They also have one for distributed generation and aggregation of these uh, solar, whatever it is. And so blockchain really allows this to happen, that you can actually have... Oh, God, there's such a deep, deep hole to dig into. I'm going to try to keep it shallow as possible. Like trying but. to figure
0: out like how much information is actually necessary. Exactly.
2: <laughs> okay. uh, so, I mean, the one I'll mention is Rule 21. So, it's a huge thing within California. Um, I think it's IEEE 1547, which is essentially all this what I'm saying means the smart inverters. So that says when you have solar on your roof, it's kind of an on and off traditionally. You just let it run whenever it can when it produces energy, great. But if you let it be a smart inverter, there's a lot more potential for generation shedding, uh, generation clipping, all these different things are much more integrated into the grid that can actually work with Basically, the needs of the grid. So essentially, you say you have a glut of solar all of a sudden, you need to kind of like shed some of it before you blow out all your transmission. You can easily do that with smart produce. And so blockchain can really be the mechanism that does this. Currently, with Rule 21, their whole idea is are going to create this very secure communication structure, which... Basically, it could be done with blockchain, if blockchain was ready to pick it up, which I think there's some certain things that need to be kind of resolved. I think specifically the the amount of gas per transaction is sometimes a little bit costly when it comes to some of these transactions that happen on a regular basis. But yeah, it's definitely getting there.
0: Yeah, for systems like that, the proposals I've most commonly seen are not public blockchains, and they're oftentimes trusted parties. So they don't require the same amount of electricity as other things. So people are thinking about that, because that irony is literally right in your face.
2: (laughs) God yeah if you look down in uh, I think Grant County within the, so pretty much a lot of the blockchain operators are here in Washington state and they're causing havoc with utilities down south. So
0: they were doing some sort of like rate arbitrage thing and moving out to Wenatchee but then the the utility caught on, right? And then they said you're actually paying a higher rate, something like that.
2: Yeah, exactly because I mean basically within like 2 years the low being how much power per all the customers use I think doubled in that uh. specific county and they're like what what the heck we don't even know what to do here so which they're fine now but still yeah they they definitely put them into a different class than they were before
0: so then they're going to the next district that will have chief electricity okay that's nice and fun yeah we should start uh wrapping it up i think any last words on maybe what we can look forward to the next couple of years of electricity generation and utilities <laughs> it's hard to like say. Hard minds want to know. Ooh.
2: I mean, it's it's going to be a very interesting time. I think if you just look at what's happening with PG&E, which is Pacific Gas and Electric down in California, which is the one of the largest utilities in the nation right now, they just filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy like a week ago due to all the fires that happened there. So I think as these risks become greater and the balance sheet for utilities become a lot more uncertain with certain types of generation, I think you're going to see a lot more of a shift towards renewables. And it's going to be fascinating. I think it's going to be kind of tumultuous. I think it's going to cause some issues If rates might go up, but I think generally the writing on the walls there, it just depends on how long people take to read it.
0: You are very well trained with defining your initialisms and acronyms. I think you might know more of them than any, any person I've met. (laughs) Well, that's, yeah. (laughs) Is that your life uh, working in the, in the government? That is my life
2: with utilities in general. There's so many acronyms. So, and it's, I've been trying to really hold back on them too.
0: You were, you were really good at it. So thank you for defining all of those. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.